0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Frey, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Paul Gouter, Professor of Law at Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. We will discuss his book, "The Rule of Law in the United States: An Unfinished Project of Black Liberation," which is published by Hart Publishing. So, welcome back to the show, Paul. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be back. Oh, God, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. One of my favorite legal scholars. And I always enjoy reading your articles and books immensely. And I especially enjoyed reading this one for a number of different reasons we'll get into. But one of the ones that hit me right up the bat was that you published this book, Open Access, which means anyone can read it for free. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about how that happened and why you made that choice. Yeah, so I think there are a few things, right? So one
1: is, you know, books are an amazing format to write in. But, you know, like, especially for a legal scholar where I think, you know, books give you both the length to really develop ideas, but at the same time, you don't have as many of the restrictions associated with law reviews, you know, all of the footnotes and all that stuff. Um, But the real problem with books is accessibility. Right. I mean, the fact of the matter is that almost all law reviews, even if they're not formally open access, are kind of de facto open access because the journals tend to post PDFs on their websites and they tend to not complain if you share them around. And so it's a lot easier just to get read and cited, which matters for mercenary reasons, in law reviews than it is in books. And so I've actually really beginning with this one, made a program. Like I've sort of made a commitment to have my books be open access. And so the next one, which is actually already out and, you know, watch for a future episode, <laughs> um, is also open access. And even my first book, I actually, this isn't done yet, but I'll give you the scoop, is I managed to negotiate a deal with Cambridge to, at a reasonable distance, scount retroactively make my first book open access. And so when all of that processing is done, every book that I've written will be open access. And, and this, this happened, you know, for this book, I have to admit that there's a slightly less joyous story associated with this. So, you know, as all of the listeners will probably know, open access ain't free. Um, And so I wasn't planning to publish this one open access and then so this came out in december of 2021 um but in october of 2021 i happened upon the web page that the publisher had created for the book and i saw the price and i screamed (laughs) (laughs) And I did not start throwing things, but I came very close to throwing things. And I reached out to them and I said, um, do you realize that people will buy this book? if you price it at something reasonable. And they said, sorry, don't have any control over this, but you can make it open access. And so two months before the publication date, I went to my dean on my hands and knees begging for money. And I found a pot of money at the library. And I just like concocted five or six different pots of money and jammed them all together and managed to make it open access at the last possible minute. And, you know, with any luck, I hopefully that's increased the readership. I mean, it certainly hasn't done any favors for my royalties, but as we know, you don't really
0: make royalties on academic books anyway, so no big deal. It's true. It's true. Well, I mean, in light of that, the other thing that struck me immediately upon opening the book was the phenomenally impactful graphic design of the cover, which I recognized immediately, and I feel like is kind of rich in a number of different ways. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it, the choice that you made and what that meant to you. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's the sort of opposite, right? So that was my complaint about the publisher. And so
1: this is going to be just my celebration of the publisher, because I didn't actually expect to get that cover. So, you know, they they. they have this thing where they do like existing fine art. They get licenses for the covers. And so they essentially said to me like, hey, can you find something reasonably within our budget that you'd like to use as art for the cover? And so I said, you know, Elizabeth Catlett's homage to the Panthers, <laughs> um, which is a choice that I made partly because, as you can see, it's just like a really vigorous cover, right? I mean, you know, it's not very often that you get to see a cover of an academic book with black power fists and a machine gun but and what's also thematic i mean one of the things that i argue in the book is that even organizations within the long Black liberation movement that we don't really think of as like rule of law organizations or even lawful have a part, a major part to play in the American rule of law story, including the Panthers. And so, you know, the, the, this is really sort of the perfect piece thematically, but I expected it to be a negotiation, right? So I, I tell my publisher, like, okay, can I have cat litter barge to the Panthers thinking that they were going to say, are you crazy? We're, we're a UK publisher, no less. So you know they're a little bit sort of more cautious. There's no way that we could have like a machine gun on the cover of an academic book. But they said, sure. And then they handed it to their graphic designers. And yeah, I mean, the typeface, the way that they sort of take the color scheme of the book and match it to the color scheme of the artwork. I mean, it really, like somebody in their I designed a pub just leaned in on it. And I yeah, was yeah. so happy to see it. Yeah,
0: that. no, their, their graphic designers nailed it. I mean, yeah. it is perfect yeah. and I love it. And in light of that, I wonder if we can kind of dive in a little bit to the substance of, of the book then, right? I mean, this is your second book addressing the concept of the rule of law. What do you mean by <laughs> the rule of law, right? You've got a particular take Yeah. Uh, And one that you want to advance in this book, I think in light of your previous.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Lay that out for us. Like, what do you mean when you talk about the rule of law? And how does it differ maybe from what other people might mean? Yeah. So
1: I'm going to approach this from two different directions, right? So direction number one, you know, philosophers, like legal theorists, right? Like, you know, so it's a lot of different views, of this rule of law concept. Like they sort of more or less cluster around the same territory, right? Like everybody can think of a few things that are clearly not the rule of law, right? Like, you know, when the KGB knocked on people's doors in the middle of the night to haul them off to have a show trial, right? Clearly not the rule of law. Um, you know, the Taliban in Afghanistan like executing people for getting raped. Clearly not the rule of law. But there's a really widespread disagreement among philosophers on what the rule of law is. Uh, In essence, I argue sort of again and again, really, in like so many papers, that the rule of law sort of fundamentally involves two big ideas, really three big ideas, right? Big idea number one is just simple government obedience to the law. Um, Like pretty much every person who thinks that the rule of law is a valuable idea, thinks that it has something to do with the government obeying the law. Big idea number two, something about public participation. And there's, you know, we could have a three hour long podcast just on that. But keeping it relatively simple and minimalistic, like the way that the government has to follow the law. And this is true for like really practical reasons in addition to theoretical reasons, is that it has to go through the public making the government comply with the law. And so the third big idea is this idea that the, there's equal law. That it is what the government is bound to obey. And again, you know, we could have another three hours on what equal law means. I have a distinctive take on what equal law means, that it's probably a lot to defend in podcast format, but like, that's the very basic idea. But in a way, what's sort of more interesting to me is thinking about this from the other direction that is, thinking about the United States side of it. So, you know, I came to write this book unintentionally i was actually solicited to write this book as part of a series Hodge is doing this rule of law in the world series and so there's like a brazil volume and a china volume basically these country-specific studies of the rule of law and so they come to me and I was actually already under contract to write a completely different book, which then became the third book when they came to me. But I thought to myself, okay, one, right, like this is an amazing opportunity to really take the sort of high theory work of the rule of law and contextualize it in the US. But also, too, frankly, if I don't get it, some FedSoc person will. And like, you know, the FedSoc people have this habit of writing these sort of dreadful books about the, or even these dreadful articles about the rule of law, and so there, there are these themes, right, like one of my favorite themes is every time a FedSoc person writes about the rule of law, like there was this period, sort of post the fall of Soviet Union, where there were just these Russians, like, like, like every one of them has this sort of excursus about, like, some Russian showing up in the U.S. and, like, toddling into, like, John Roberts' office or William Red Cross office to be, like, showing America, show us how you do the law. Um, Which, I mean, what is just like deeply ironic, you know, I was writing this book in the closing days of the Trump administration. Um, So, you know, Ron Cass, right, with the sort of wrote this book a few years ago called The Rule of Law in America that leads off with this ridiculous story about, like, some Russian going to the United States, going to, like, Ronald Reagan. Might have been Gorbachev, of course. Somebody somebody showing up in Reagan's office and Reagan going on about, oh, like, about how, like, he, you know, couldn't have protesters arrested and, you know, people could protest outside the White House secure because of America's rule of law in the knowledge that they'd be able to criticize the government freely. And I'm writing this book, like, I was finishing this book as the George Floyd Floyd protests were going on, as um, like Bill Barr was having protesters on that very spot that Ronald Reagan was talking about, tear gassed for having the temerity to provide bad photo ops for Donald Trump. And so, you know, this book really, like a large part of what the book's meant to do Is to try to provide a cure for the sort of like, hey, you know, America is this paragon of the international rule of law. We show up out in the world. We develop the rule of law. You know, we have like USAID running around giving like building gleaming courthouses in every country in the global south, and of really trying to bring home the idea that the rule of law in the United States is itself a subject of struggle. I've got to tell you one other thing. I've sort of gone way past your question, but technically speaking, I think this book is banned in Tennessee, or at least it's banned in Tennessee schools. Like The anti-critical race theory law in Tennessee has a specific section I don't remember the exact words, but this is pretty close to verbatim. Like one of the specific things you're forbidden from teaching in the Tennessee schools is that the rule of law is not real in the United States, but is instead the product of struggle among social groups. I saw that. I was like, did the Tennessee legislature read my book?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit of a diss on CLS that only only the critical race theorists got uh, banned. <laughs> yeah, you know, CLS I, I is like not relevant anymore.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Kennedy doesn't scare anybody anymore. So, so Paul, I mean, on one level, the book is about the rule of law today, but it's also a book about the history yeah. of the rule of law in the united states and there was one thing that struck me kind of at the beginning of the book but i think a theme that kind of ran through a lot of it which was this tension between republican and liberal ideas Mm -hmm. of what it means to talk about the concept of the rule of law and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how that kind of informed your perspective on what you were trying to do in the book yeah,
1: I mean, so in a way, I, I, I showed this book to a few historians when I was writing it, and I have to admit that I was a little afraid, right? Because, you know, there's a sense in which like the sort of Gordon Wood thing is so passé. At this point in constitutional history, I can sort of tell a con law professor rather than a historian is writing a book about the founding era because they cite Gordon Wood a lot. Um, but I mean, the thing is, right, the sort of question, I think, particularly in the founding era, this tension between liberalism and republicanism, shows up so clearly and it shows up so clearly in the driving theme of the book and the sort of origin of the driving theme of the book, namely the project of black liberation, because I think for me, right, if we're thinking about the American rule of law, we're, we have to start with the most, like, flaming, blatant violation of the American rule of law that there ever was, namely slavery. Um, shockingly, that claim itself is controversial. <laughs> um, there are people who will claim that slavery was a system under law. We can talk about that if you'd like. I think that that's frivolous nonsense, but Regardless, like if we understand slavery as this, like, sort of comical violation of the rule of law, and if we understand particularly the sort of struggle for abolition as a rule of law struggle, which I do, right? Like the historical arc of the book is driven by this notion that one of the things that we have to attend to when we think about the rule of law in a country is think about like, where is that country tempted to break the rule of law, right? Like, if we're thinking about how, what the rule of law in the United States looks like today, we can't understand that except through how the rule of law in the United States developed. All political principles as instantiated in actual constitutional institutions develop through contestation, through claims, through struggle. And who in the United States has been demanding the protections of law since the very beginning, right? The enslaved, then the freed people, then the people living under Jim Crow than the people today in the movement for Black lives calling for not being shot by police. And so I knew when I started the book that it was going to have to be framed around the long Black liberation movement. And it means it has to start with slavery. And slavery is just this, like, such important framing contrast, right? Because, you know, all the while the early Americans, you know, the founders were going on about the rule of law. There are so many places that I quote in this book where the founders like characterize themselves as a rule of law state. And at the same time, they create this like patently lawless institution that's central to the entire country's political existence for its first century. Okay, that's a puzzle you know thinking as a scholar like that's something that requires explanation and so my claim is that like the liberal republican thing is a big part of the explanation because it creates this tension between like the republican vision of political freedom as it's sort of instantiated in the united states like really centers on property Right, you know, for a Republican in the small r sense, like the citizen is represented as an independent, like smallholder who engages with politics from this foundation of civic independence. The foundation of civic independence is property. And so for a Republican, the rule of law as a like central value really means protecting property rights in the first instance. But that gets really ugly (laughs) when a major property right is the right to exercise arbitrary authority over other people, AKA slavery. And so that tension is just like built into the system from the start and it really like the, the problem of slavery is fundamentally the problem of confronting the Republican desire for the protection of property as a rule of law idea against the liberal idea of individual freedom.
0: Yeah. I mean, because one thing that really struck me while reading your book was that in some ways it almost felt like a, a sort of story of ideological hangover in the sense of like an institution ended, but had, these kind of long-term ideological repercussions in the way that the institutions and governmental structures that it governed lasted much longer than, than slavery itself. Absolutely. Although also
1: I think, I mean, another way to think about that ideological hangover. So I've, never agreed with the statement that you can't use the master's tools to take down the master's house, right? Um, And so another reason that I really sort of vigorously frame the entire book as being an account of the way that the Black liberation movement fought for the rule of law is because I think that you can actually see those ideas, you know, the Republican ideas being taken up and being used to support the kind of liberal legality that goes along with freedom for the enslaved, right? So it's not a coincidence that the, the very first thing that freed people started asking for, I mean, the vote, obviously, but also forty acres. I don't know where the mule came from. There's no evidence of a mule, but there's a lot of evidence of where forty acres came from. So the sort of claim for forty acres. Came originally, I forget which general it was. It might have been Sherman, no, Butler, maybe. One of the the Union generals, um, you know, wins a bunch of land in South Carolina, conquers, seizes, whatever you do when it's a civil war. (laughs) Um, And so, basically, a bunch of like black people and like religious leaders and so forth come and say, hey, you know, we. What what we really need as people who have just been liberated is we need land, right? Like we need, if you think about this in Republican terms, the material conditions of independent citizenship. And so there's this general field order that is the first place where like 40 acres of land are allocated temporarily in this case to these people who have just been freed. And then the, the the this sort of initial like 40 acres ends up turning into the Freedmen's Bureau 40 acres, right? The idea that one of the functions of the Freedmen's Bureau would be to allocate, redistribute, reform land. Um, this gets thwarted a Essentially, because Andrew Johnson, of course, decides to pardon all of the enslavers and give them their property back. There are also some quibbles about the treason clause and whether the forfeiture only for life provision in the treason clause meant that you couldn't seize the land of the enslavers. I mean, I happen to think that those quibbles were overrated, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, But so, you know, like right at the beginning, I think you can see. The freed people along with their allies in white abolition sort of taking this idea that the sort of foundation of citizenship is economic inclusion is like achieving economic independence, and using that to ground their own claims. You know, fast forward a few years to the welfare rights movement, same thing, right? Like, we think about Goldberg versus Kelly as law professors, in terms of Charles Reich and his article, um, which essentially invokes the Republican idea, right? The article says, like, hey, in order to be secure in their citizenship, people who are receiving welfare benefits need to have those treated as property. It's a pure, like, Republican idea. But, you know, that wasn't just like Charles Wright coming out of nowhere, right? Like this is something that was an active Black woman led welfare rights movement at the same time that Wright was working in alliance with. And so again, like you see, like the Black liberation movement taking these Republican ideas and saying, okay, if you're going to understand the foundation of American freedom and legality to be property rights, then here are our claims for property rights.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, just to change direction a little bit, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about policing as kind of a lens through which to see the rule of law, or frankly, the lack of rule of law in practice in the United States. Why do you think that that's such an important way to look at how we do the rule of law in practice? and And you know, what would you have to you know what do you think we should take away from that? You know, one
1: of the foundational problems in constitutional law is that we have conducted our constitutional law for a very long time as if the framers are distinctively like white propertyed men. And when we do that we miss out on the interpretive resources that the claims of people who aren't white property men can help us you can offer to help us understand our law right and so that's really a sort of big theme of the book right that's why i talk about the long black liberation movement as the source of so many of our rule of law ideas well today the long Black liberation movement isn't over, right? It's not as if like Martin sort of solved everything in the civil rights movement. And the core place where that movement is active right now is in the movement for Black lives. I I mean, I, I don't think we could ignore that. And so I think that there's a continuous through line. You know, I've been calling this the Long Black Liberation Movement for a reason, right? As it seems to me that we can understand abolition, we can understand the freed people's demands in reconstruction, we can understand the anti-lynching movement, we can understand the welfare rights movement, we can understand the civil rights movement, and we can understand the contemporary movement for Black lives as among other things a continuous set of claims about the equal protection of the laws raised by black americans and so that sort of historical art a historical arc wow um really necessitates thinking about the thing that the Movement for Black Lives is talking about, which I also think is really really sort of core failing of the rule of law in the United States, namely the immense amount of arbitrary authority as well as violence carried out by the police without meaningful legal restraints, and particularly on black bodies. The other thing is going back to this contrast between the sort of FedSoc rule of law in the United States And my rule of law in the United States is that one of the things that I've been thinking and saying a lot over the last few years is there's really this sort of diametrically opposing rule of law conversations, right? So rule of law conversation number one, call this the Fed stock capitalist rule of law conversation. It's exemplified by, if you think about like the scholarship of Richard Epstein and Philip Hamburger, even though he doesn't call himself a rule of law guy. Well, like, the thing to be protected is property rights. Back to that republicanism thing again. And the real problem is essentially that the administrative state is exercising too many discretionary powers in the regulation of the economy. Now, I think there's actually something to the critique of the administrative state. Um, But... You know, if we just think about the administrative state on its own whatever the SEC or the EPA or the PTO does, like you can find anybody in ICE, anybody in CBP, anybody in the immigration apparatus, and they would just like laugh at the SEC and be like, oh, you sissies. You think that's arbitrary power? Watch me deport this guy without any kind of a hearing, right? And so it's just a sort of blinkeredness where we've got this ideal that's supposed to be about the constraint of power, but instead of focusing on the places where people are actually vulnerable to power, like when there's a state official with a gun pointed at them, We focus on entities that have like no real vulnerability. We worry about the regulation of Chevron, which is perfectly capable of defending itself against the state. And we don't worry about teenagers being picked up by the police and asylum seekers being deported by the INS. And so the other reason to focus on things like policing is because if we're actually concerned about the control of arbitrary power, then we need to begin from the places where people are actually vulnerable to arbitrary power. And that ain't the administrative state with the EPA.
0: Yeah, and that's so right, because it it seems like they're not wrong in theory, but what they're recognizing feels like a kind of simulacrum uh, of the rule of law, or like a mirage of the rule of law that camouflages the real arbitrariness of the way that the state exercises power on a day to day basis, yeah, sometimes
1: quite literally camouflages, so I you know a couple of years ago, I wrote this review that like very few people ever read because I stuck it in this like online law review by political scientists. <laughs> almost this online so I'd, so this is like law and law and courts book, something like that, but it was like, I wrote this review of Sunstein and Vermeule's book, Law on Leviathan, which is this, like, defense of the administrative state against, I mean, basically against Philip Hamburg, Although they barely name him, with, you know, a little bit of against Epstein as well, right? And so, you know, this book is so fascinating because they they they, they offer, like, a really plausible defense of, like, the legal characteristics of the sort of EPA. <laughs> um, you know, they they sort of go over all of these cases where, like, the courts sort of hold the you know, economic regulation to these kind of vaguely Lawn fuller sort of standards of legality. And they conclude, hey, you know, the administrative state is perfectly lawful. Philip Hamburger is wrong. And they do this in, like... I don't know if it's complete ignorance or just, like, complete disdain for the fact that, like, there's this entire other half of the administrative state that consists in, like, the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security and all the sub-entities of those, where they've got people like... Putting kids in cages and destroying water caches in the desert and having expedited removal programs, where essentially, if some like immigration frontline immigration officer sees somebody show up with a visa and decides, no, I don't believe you, they can order them deported without any kind of a hearing. I mean, we've got this like completely arbitrary system of power, but they conduct this defense of the administrative state as if. ICE and CBP aren't part of the administrative state. Incidentally, you know how you know that you have no impact as a scholar? Um, A matter of weeks after I published that book review, Joe Biden put Cass Sunstein in charge of the regulatory apparatus of immigration. I'd literally published like 20,000 word book reviews saying Cass Sunsey doesn't know anything about immigration. And this is what Joe Biden goes and does. So
0: I, I never thought that Joe Biden was reading my writing, but now I know he isn't. <laughs> well, so in your book, you also referenced the concept of legal alienation as a way of thinking about sort of how people experience the rule of law or the lack of rule of law in practice. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so for me, I think this really comes
1: from a few things, right? So one, I mean, just reflecting, like there's this moment in the 2016 presidential debates Well, you know, Hillary Clinton turns to Donald Trump and she says, like, you know, hey, like, why haven't you paid any taxes, (laughs) right? Like, you know, you've paid like a dollar in taxes in the last 10 years or whatever it was, you know, basically like, are you a crook? And Trump's response is, that makes me smart. Right. So it's this sort of purely instrumental attitude to the law, like I can get away with this. Um, you know, the law's like kind of a scam is what Trump seems to be saying. Or at least that's the message that I think people were getting from like, oh, well, I evaded my taxes. Yeah, that makes me smart. I got away with it. I hired sharp lawyers and accountants. and to me, like the fact that that was a thing that like people resonated with reflects a kind of deep toxicity in our political culture, but it's a toxicity in our political culture that I can kind of understand, right? So first like, think think about it from the perspective of people like us, like you and me, you know, like pretty pretty high income as things go, professional, like kind of know our way around the system, right? Like even from the like extraordinary privileged position of people like you and me, like, on the day-to-day basis, the legal, the legal system kind of presents itself to our, us in our non-professional capacities as like a bunch of bullshit, right? Like some corporation decides that they want to make our lives worse. And so you get an email and it's from like, you know, random company you have an account with, Dot Incorporated. We've changed our terms of services. You know, congratulations, like you now are giving intellectual property rights to everything that's ever attached us to us. And here's a mandatory Arbitration clause that arbitration will be conducted in Outer Mongolia, and you pay all the costs. And you know, I mean, it's just like what what like Peggy Raiden years ago called rights deletion. Um now you know imagine this from the perspective of somebody vastly less privileged than one of us right like the IRS audits people who get the earned income tax credit at a massively disproportionate rate relative to auditing rich people undoubtedly in part because the rich people are capable of defending themselves and the people who get the earned income tax credit aren't right like the immigration again, I'm going to go back to immigration because it's just so mind-blowing. You know, during the Trump administration, the... um usics was using like stupid technical deficiencies in immigration forms as a reason to deny people things like somebody could you know apply for a visa and you know they'd be a seven-year-old kid and they'd leave the dates of employment blank and they'd reject it as like well this is not complete it doesn't have dates of employment you know could somebody could check their like status as single, and then not draw a line through date of marriage, and the absence of a line was a reason to reject the form, right? So it's this, this kind of abusiveness that the legal system presents itself as to people in their ordinary day-to-day lives. And to my mind, remember I said that the sort of second big idea of the rule of law is that it has to go through ordinary people, that it takes ordinary people to hold powerful officials to account. The sort of processes of actually conducting the rule of law involve ideas like due process, like ordinary people getting their days in court, you know, that we cannot have a rule of law in the United States if ordinary people aren't invested with the idea that the law itself has meaning, that it's a thing that the weak can deploy against the strong. And when what people see on a day-to-day basis, every day in their lives when they interact with anything that looks legal, is actually the strong using it against the weak. I don't think that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that's a critique of sort of really the inequality and in how we do law at every level, for everything from police bullying people who can't defend themselves in the streets and ICE bullying asylum seekers to the bullshit contracts that you and I get in the email every
0: day. Mm-hmm. Well, so Paul, in closing, and in light of what, you just said, kind of big picture, what I was wondering, after reading your book, was what it means from a kind of political, political science, ideological perspective, when the most crucial advocates for the rule of law are the people doing so from the bottom up, right? When when the argument for the rule of law is coming from Black Lives Matter, is coming from immigration reform advocates, is coming from prison abolitionists, is coming from police reformers or police abolitionists. What does that mean for the way that we think about what it means to have a rule of law and sort of who's really in the position to instantiate it? yeah i mean that's that's a really good question and
1: i wish i had good answers for that i mean just in terms of brute politics you know one of the things that i hope sort of drawing more attention to the rule of law from below can do Is kind of, I mean, I'm just going to call it like the sort of libertarian liberal alliance that never seems to happen, but always seems like it could happen, right? I mean, I get a surprising amount of response that's positive to my rule of law work from libertarians. And because because there's a reason that even though I'm clearly like very far on the left, I mean, I teach critical race theory some years, like this book is illegal in Tennessee. Nonetheless, right, I think that a lot of people on the relative right who do think of themselves as committed to these rule of law ideas. And every once in a while it works, right? So if you think about, like, the, the, I I love to, to point this out. So, you know, Neil Gorsuch is sort of known as the guy who really hates Chevron, right? Like if the Supreme Court strikes down the entire Im- the administrative state in the next term, it'll almost certainly be Gorsuch who gets the opinion. Um, Gorshut sort of made his name while he was on the DC circuit as the guy who really hated Chevron in an immigration case. Um, and that's not a coincidence, right? Like, this, I forget the name of the case now, but it's a sort of wacky case. He like wrote the majority opinion and then wrote like a concurrence to his own majority so that he could have this like anti-Chevron screed. But there's this wonderful line in it well, he talks about how, like, administrative processes raise all of these concerns about notice and, like, sort of access to, like, having a day in court that, you know, sort of go to the core of the idea of due process because, like, who, you know, if, like, this was, let's see, like, a, 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 it was about the Brandex doctrine and some, like, questions about retroactivity of legal changes. Um, but, you know, that he says, like, who could, like, possibly anticipate that like some, you know, change an interpretation of the Department of Justice could go back and change your legal rights and like court opinions without quote an army of perfumed lawyers and lobbyists and I love the army of perfumed lawyers and lobbyists line because it evidences the recognition like Neil Gorshitz understands that there are some people in our society who actually have armies of perfumed lawyers and lobbyists and other people who don't And that they can experience the legal system in completely different ways, right? I mean, the other place where I sort of really want to get the libertarians with me is, like, the libertarians are so good on civil asset forfeiture. It's like civil asset forfeiture is batshit nuts, right? Like all of a sudden, all the Republican ideas about property that James Madison was so invested in go completely out the window once you like change the caption of the case from like state versus like this person to state versus like 50 grand found in somebody's glove compartment on a speeding ticket. Um, It's just completely nuts though. So, like, in terms of, like, concrete politics, one of the goals that I really hope to contribute to is to sort of bring to the attention of the people who are invested in things like property rights and limited government that, A, the idea of what poverty rights and limited government in the United States comes from the people who they're voting for anti critical race theory bills against, but also, B, that you can't have the one without the other. I mean, you might not be too right. So there's, you know, like there's this old idea of the dual state that was originally kind of like um, Ernest Frankel sort of came up with this idea as a way to explain Nazi Germany. Actually, this sort of idea that there was simultaneously a legal state where things like the regulation of the economy happened, and then there was a prerogative state which was where like the Nazi Party could just do whatever it wanted in order to preserve its power. Unlike, you know, one of the sort of really salient questions about, like, I I think, and the sort of political science of the rule of law is, is the dual state possible? like there's a sense in which china's a sort of really like technologically advanced dual state right now right like china manages to have this like gigantic economy and so it manages to preserve like enough of people's individual economic interests that like you can get a jack ma who's willing to build this gigantic business but at the same time, obviously, you know, as we've seen in recent years in Hong Kong, for example, the CCP still maintains the prerogative state, right? Like, but I don't really think that in a country like the US right now, the dual state is possible. So, so I'm not really convinced that you can have things like the secure protection of property rights, at least not unless we really want to roll back to, like, redeemers (laughs) Um, without, yeah, without either having, like, really strong legal castes or without preserving basic legality for everybody. Mm. And so, you know, to, to my capitalist friends, I would like to tell you that your property rights depend on things like controlling the police.
0: Capitalism in favor of Black Lives Matter. I'm I'm all there for it. Um, (laughs) Thanks so so much, Paul. This was great, and I really enjoyed talking to you about your book.
1: Thank you. This was so much fun.
2: And glory be! He fired! Help! Police! Somebody call a policeman! Call a cop! Call what? Why, that's me. I'm a cop. I'm Kilroy the cop. <laughs> I am Kilroy the cop. Poppin' me regular beat. I've been pounding the street till I'm flat on me feet. With me, nice stick in hand. I'm a brave, fearless lad. If you've done something bad, now's the time to be sad. I can run like a deer and then stop on a dime Me brakes work just fine, but not all of the time. As I walked on the street, I'm a born sight to see. I protect property, I protect you and me. Uh, nice doggy. Nice doggy. Go away, doggy, go away. Help! Help! I have muscles in this arm and muscles in that. Though me chest may be flat, sure me tummy is fat. One, two, three, four, one. Two, three, ow! (laughs) You can all be as strong with this robust physique If you'll practice this leap every day in the week If you want exercise so you'll grow up real big Try a zag and a zig like you're chasing a pig If you find that you're winded before very long Then you're breathing all wrong So try singing this song Come back to in my Mavorning, Mavorning. Come back Arun to the land of my birth. And if this doesn't work, you can tell at a glance, try a jig or a dance, like you dance in your pants. my goodness and glory, be! I clean forgot. I was chasing a feller. I am a Kilroy, the cop. If you'll let me repeat, if I'm not to be beat, I will have to be fleet. So goodbye, boys and girls. Let's get going, their feet. Now a blast on the whistle. Tweet tweet. Well, I'll read. <laughs>